So I'm going to have you turn to a, a really familiar text, and that is Luke chapter 7. And while you're finding Luke 7, I'm going to take a moment to pray for us. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the opportunity to meet together and to think on these things, Lord, that are so important to us that as men, Lord, we are, we are built in our, in our sin nature. We're built by our father Adam to be filled with pride and self. But we were created in the image of God. And so the, the truest reflection of that image is to be like our Savior Jesus, the second Adam. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at what it means to be humble as men of God, I pray that this is a time of true reflection, of genuine heart change, of attitude adjustment, and practices that become different, Lord. I pray that you would sanctify us and make us more like our dear Savior, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we'll be in Luke 7 in a moment, and after that, we're going to a lot of different places. So as we often do, I'll just have you kind of uh, maybe make some notes, and then later on, we will be in Proverbs for a bit of time. It's been a number of months now since uh, I chose to do quite a long series here at First Watch on humility. And it's something that's been a good good study for my own soul. It's been um, a good reminder for me. But I, I can't emphasize enough that this is the issue when it comes to being a Christian. This is it. Everything hinges on humility. Because it, a lack of humility ruins every other part of sanctification. And so that's why there's such an emphasis here. And I've, I've quoted every time from our brother of the 19th century, Andrew Murray. Let me just give you some seasoned thoughts from this dear man of God who's gone on to be with the Lord. He says, When in the presence of God, lowliness of heart has become the very spirit of our life, it will then manifest itself in all of our bearing toward our brethren. In other words, Murray's pushing us toward humility, not as something you're trying to do, but as someone you're trying to be. It's who you are. You're defined by humility. He says this, and he's speaking of Romans 12.10, The humble man seeks at all times to act upon the rule in honor, preferring one another. That's just the way he is. He is just a man who honors others and prefers others. Murray says this, Look upon every brother who tries or vexes us as means of God's grace, God's instrument for our purification, for our exercise of the humility Jesus, our life, breathes within us. And let us have such faith in all of God and the nothing of self. Let me reread that. I, I left a word out. It, makes it, it changes the meaning. Let us have such faith in the all of God and the nothing of self as nothing in our own eyes that we may in God's power only seek to serve one another in love. 
Every time I've been at First Watch over the past few months, this is the topic we're, we're looking at. And I've given seven hallmarks of a Christian man who's exercising humility. We've done 14 so far. Here they are. The humble man receives God's sovereign design. He guards against unrighteous anger. This is from our previous times. He properly assesses his importance. We're going to talk about that one again. He avoids unrealistic standards. He's careful about self-promotion. He strives to please God, not men. He eagerly receives instruction. He serves for others' sake. He seeks forgiveness at every opportunity. He submits to authority joyfully. He takes his sin extremely seriously. He responds patiently to others. He is content in his condition, and he defaults to thankfulness. So I want to continue on with seven more hallmarks of a humble Christian man. The first one is he restrains self-importance. He restrains self-importance. Now I want to read this familiar text. It's a story with a parable contained in the story. And there's an obvious comparison that happens here. This is the account of a sinful woman who unburdened uh, her sin on Christ and she's showing gratitude to the Lord. And there's there's this comparison, and I want to see if you can catch it. It's pretty obvious, but let's try and catch this comparison together. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. I'm just going to read the whole story. It's, It's familiar to you, but it's necessary to set the context. Now one of the Pharisees was asking him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, saying, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, I love it when Jesus answers thoughts. I just, I don't know, that's a, it's, like a, it's like spiking the ball after a touchdown to me. <laughs> Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he graciously forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And catch this, by the way, he's looking at the woman and speaking to him. Very, very powerful. And he goes on, You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Now, this episode, along with the parable that Jesus gives to Simon, it makes the point that those who love Christ love Him because they understand the immensity of their sin. They understand how much they've been forgiven. Those who don't love Christ are in that state because they don't judge that they had any need for forgiveness. That maybe they had a little need for forgiveness, but most likely no need for forgiveness. All the way back in verse 39, you can see this with the Pharisee. He thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. You catch what his position in relation to the woman is. He deems himself as higher, as better, as more quality so he doesn't deem himself as being in need he has no spiritual needs so did you catch the comparison it's pretty obvious because Jesus is the one who made the comparison he's comparing the sinful woman to Simon the self-righteous Pharisee Simon makes the same comparison and passes Jesus makes the comparison and Simon fails The three things the woman did for Jesus, washing his feet, kissing his feet, anointing his feet with perfume, these were similar to what Simon culturally should have done. He should have washed Jesus' feet, or at least had them washed. Uh, He should have given the cultural kiss on the cheeks as as a greeting. He should have anointed Jesus' head with a little perfumed oil, which is uh, to just help take the, the stink of the road away. Why did Simon not do these things? These are normal things you would do for anybody who comes through your doors. Why did he not do these culturally normal signs of honor and respect? Because he had no intention of honoring Christ. He had no intention of honoring him. His intention was the opposite. It was to give a show of importance, to give a, a show to Christ. Look how important I am. And you're, now where are you staying again? Oh, that's right. You're, you're homeless. Here, step into my vast courtyard that's so big that many people from the community can come and watch this banquet that I'm putting on, like some sort of event. Simon invited Jesus to his home to make sure Jesus was put in his place. I think it's very easy for us to become indignant on Jesus' behalf. Well, how dare Simon do that? How dare he be that self-important? You know, the same dynamic can happen among brothers in the church. It does happen. As seeing myself as better than others, as seeing myself as in a different category from others. This is the bane of the church. And and we know this happens in the church because at least two passages in the New Testament warn about it. Not in the context of the world, but in the context of in the walls of the church. Listen to James as he explains the equality of brotherhood in Christ, no matter what your earthly position is. James 1, 9 and 10, But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. What is this saying? This is a beautiful picture here. James is saying that the brother of little means can boast, I am a child of the living God. When I die, I might have a nickel. And that's it. And on the opposite side, the brother of much means should boast, Everything I have for me will be taken at my death, and I'm glad I have a heavenly inheritance, that we're equal. Uh, The old question is, how much of a rich man's stuff does he leave at death? All of it. All of it. Now, 
what I want to point out is that James wouldn't be issuing these commands about self-importance if it wasn't an issue in the church. It was an issue. The Apostle Paul wouldn't have issued his admonitions to the Philippian church if self-importance wasn't an issue. In fact, he devotes an entire section of Philippians to this. Very familiar to us, but think about what he's saying in Philippians 2. Therefore, if if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in Spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves. What's the context? The context is in the church. Not in the world in general. Yes, the world appreciates humility to a certain degree, but this is in the church. And basically, he's putting them under oath. How important is this? He's basically saying, by the encouragement in Christ, by the consolation of love, by the fellowship of the Spirit, by all Christian affection, by all Christian compassion, you must, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What does it mean to regard someone as more important? It's one word in Greek that means to hold somebody above yourself. To hold above, to rise above, to place someone as before you, as above you. I can't emphasize enough how regal and royal that concept is. That you are elevating everyone else. Now, just a little side note here. It's interesting that Paul uses the same root word twice more in Philippians, but he translates it surpass. Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, placing it above, holding it above. Philippians 4.7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's placed above. It has power over me. It's a, it's a hugely important concept. So how do you know you might be succumbing to the lie and wickedness of self-importance? Because it is a self-deception. Here's some ways you might know. You're obsessed with your rights. You like to think about what my rights are. You're a Christian. You're a slave of Christ. You have no rights. You have a tendency toward indignation. You find yourself steaming at the ears and or nose often at things that happen in the church, outside the church. You become angry when others don't meet your expectations. Whether or not you actually communicated those expectations or not seems to be irrelevant. Speaking of which, you expect others to know what you want or desire. I I get this on a regular basis as a pastor. Our church is growing and once in a while I'll get an email from someone who, who says, You haven't reached out to me in three months. We have 450 people that show up on a Sunday. How I, I had no way of knowing. And so I do my best to humbly apologize and say I'll try to do better and put them on my calendar or something. But um, if you're succumbing to the lie of self-importance, you believe others around you should know what you want and what you need. And you believe the lie that what you want and what you need is actually uh, worth something. You cultivate a victim mentality when you don't get what you think you deserve. You easily think about how others have wronged you and rarely, if others, contemplate how you may have wronged another. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you drove to the park or sat in your office at home or sat in your favorite chair or sat on your back porch 
with a notebook and a pen or some sort of writing implement and made a list of every single person that there's even a slight possibility may have something against you and then made a plan of action of how you're going to make peace with that person. When was the last time you did that? Self-important people make the opposite list, right? The opposite list of here's all the people I'm upset with. This type of person who is obsessed with self-importance, this is poison in the church. And I would say also, heaven help the church in which that person becomes a leader. Because now their motivations to lead and to do things are about self. And that is the wrong motivation. That leads churches down horrible roads. Let me give you a second hallmark. And I wish there was a way to make talking about humility softer, but by its very nature, it's just not. Here's a second hallmark of a humble Christian man. He avoids self-critical attention. He avoids self-critical attention. Now, that might sound like a contradiction in terms. Self-critical attention. If I'm self-critical, how can that be a call for attention? That sounds humble. That I'm self-critical. Self-critical is being self-critical is not uh, the same as humility. It's a form of pride. Listen to the Apostle Paul's spirit-inspired illustration of the Church of Jesus Christ, particularly the one in Corinth. This is his his uh, inspired illustration. I'm sorry of the entire church, all of us. He says in First Corinthians 12. This is familiar to you. For also the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has appointed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Now, the usual lesson from this, is, from this illustration is just what Paul said. That God has appointed many members just as he desired. But I want one little detail to not slip by you here. Paul is addressing a self-critical call for attention. Where the foot says, well, I'm not a hand, so I, I need more attention. This is not just a theological statement. This is not somebody objectively saying, well, I believe that everyone has exactly the same spiritual gifting and we should all be doing exactly the same thing. No, what's implied here with the foot saying, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. What's implied is a whining call for attention. Well, I'm not a hand and I, I, I need attention. I need to be elevated. I need to be lifted up. Now, what's the implied hope? The implied hope is that some of the hands will say to the foot, Oh, of course you can be a hand. Of course we'll, we'll give you your desire because oh, you may not be gifted, but we want you to feel good about yourself. This is the sort of self-critical attention that has given rise to things like women pastors, which is a contradiction in terms. You can be one or the other, but it's women saying, I'm not a hand. I want to be a hand unqualified self-appointed pastors that there's not a single qualified shepherd on planet earth that will qualify you so I'll qualify myself terrible and ungifted bible study leaders in churches who are more enamored with leading a bible study than actually knowing how to do it all of these types of people who have self-critical attention 
they want to contribute something, they do something to get attention, and they'll manipulate people's feelings to get what they want. Instead of just saying, I'm going to be the foot, because that's who God made me. I'm going to be the foot. But I would say that this concept applies not just in the church, it applies across the board. What this is, is a lack of contentment at being who you are. And just letting that be okay. And it can manifest itself in trying to use pity to get others to elevate you beyond what you're truly ready for or capable of. This can be in the workplace, this can be in the home even, it can be in the church. And if you're not careful... If you're not careful, this sort of whining, you model this for your wife and for your kids, and you're going to create a whole bunch of whiners who think they have rights to things they don't have rights to. Self-importance is like COVID. It is contagious. You act self-important around enough people, and they'll start to catch it. And I've been around in the ministry long enough. I've, I've had men try to pull this stunt of complaining that they don't have some ministry of enough significance or importance whether or not they're actually gifted to do that thing that's why when somebody says I want to do a certain ministry great go do it go make it happen well I need you to help me make it happen then you're not the right guy because I have my own ministry to make happen you make yours happen that I I want to be important instead learn who you are be who you are and if I could give you a, a bigger more eternal picture if you feel like, I'm not getting to do all the things I want to do, can you, can you be reminded that you have a thousand years of Christ reigning on earth to do a few more things? Can you imagine how much Bible you could learn if you just said, I think I'll take 250 years to prepare and then I'm going to teach this Bible study. You have a thousand years. Let me give you a third hallmark of a humble man. I don't know how to say this unpainfully. He guards against dominating conversations. He guards against dominating conversations. That's a nice way of saying he guards against talking too much. Now, talking is good. Conversation is delightful. You've all been in those conversations where three hours flies by. Here's my question. Did it fly by just for you or for both of you? (laughs) That's a major question. Last week when uh, Tom McConnell and his family were visiting with us, uh, one evening we had the privilege of our family spending some time together at Hodel's and we brought games for their kids to play with our adult kids and so that Tom and I can enjoy a little time together. And the question was brought up about how much time to play games they would have. And one of the McConnell kids, just to be clear, said, this is two pastors talking, we've got plenty of time to play. <laughs> And the time did fly by, but I think to be fair, it flew by for, for all involved. The humble man guards against the sinful habit of dominating conversation. Proverbs 10.19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who holds back his lips has insight. That proverb haunts me because I spend my life opening my mouth in front of people. And I, I, I wonder if when I appear before the Lord, we'll have a little session where, Steve, we're going to pull you off in this room and, and uh, we'll spend the first little part of the millennium correcting the things. And then, and man, 750 years went by. Well, I got 250 left, I suppose. But if you're dominating conversation, and I say this in all love and gentleness, it may indicate that you have a belief that you haven't faced directly, that you haven't looked inwardly 
And that is the belief that what you have to say is more important than what others have to say. It's really an act of self-importance. It may be satisfying some sort of emotional urge. You've all been around people. That, that it's almost like a drug. You may be worshiping at the idol of, if I don't get to say everything I want, then I'm going to feel bad. That's an idol. Proverbs is filled with admonitions about conversation. Chapter 10 alone has a half dozen or so cautions. Chapter 10, verse 8, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but an ignorant fool of loose lips will be ruined. Verses 10 and 11, An ignorant fool of loose lips will be ruined. The, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The mouth of the wicked covers up violence. Proverbs 10.13 On the lips of the one who has understanding, wisdom is found. It's just everywhere. I suppose all of us can succumb to this at one time or another. And yes, there's a time where you do need to dominate the conversation. You do need to speak and someone needs to listen and and maybe a counseling situation or where someone is trying to help you. But here are three sinful excuses that I want you to seriously consider eliminating from your thinking. First one, that's just the way God made me. God made me that way. The second excuse, I'm an extrovert. I'm an extrovert. And the third one, I have a lot to say. Now let me walk through those three excuses. Let's analyze them with a biblical lens. First excuse, that's just the way God made me. God made you to glorify himself. Loose lips and dominating conversation is self-glorifying. So the two cannot be at odds. God made you to glorify him. As long as you're doing something that glorifies him, you're in the right. How about this excuse? I'm an extrovert. That's a personality assessment that has no basis in scripture whatsoever. Yes, we all know people made uh, people are made differently, but let's go the other route. In the same way, someone may use the excuse, I'm an introvert, as a sinful excuse to isolate themselves, to avoid difficult conversations, to avoid uh, even being able to make eye contact with someone. They say, well, I'm, I'm an introvert. Proverbs 18.1 says that the one who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He's selfish. So you can't use either one as an excuse. Or how about the excuse, I have a lot to say. I have a lot to say. If you're taking seriously the principle we already highlighted in Philippians 2 to consider others as more important than yourselves, then theoretically and technically others have more to say than you do. Now, if you know yourself and you know you're prone to this, there's a really easy solution. When you're in a conversation, tell the other person, you go first and tell me when you're done. That's a really easy way to to listen better. Let me give you a fourth hallmark. And this is one that as as a pastor concerns me. I've seen this in the church in my 25, 26 years as a, as a pastor. There's always a few that struggle with this. Put it in the positive first. The fourth hallmark, he values accountability. He values accountability. The Apostle Paul had to address the problem of independent attitudes in the church in Corinth. Factions are forming and these factions had no interest in accountability to one another. And let me read you the the classic passage here about these factions. 1 Corinthians 1 beginning in verse 10. Now I exhort you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people 
that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's Peter, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I love this. Scorched by a tattletale from Chloe's household. I love that. How wonderful. They were rightly exposing to Paul this independent spirit among different factions in the church. You know, this is something that none of those factions were saying. I am submitting to the qualified elders of this church. That would have been correct. No, instead, groups were forming around loyalty in certain men. I I heard a sermon on this that I, I think maybe missed the point. The point of the sermon was, if you're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, then you're wrong. But if you're the one who say, I follow Christ, then you're right. And that sounds good, but they weren't right. Because when they said, I follow Christ... The implication is, I follow Christ and I need accountability to no man. But Christ put us under accountability to men. So if you say, I follow Christ but not men, then you're actually not following Christ. Right? Now, I understand that as men you need a certain freedom to be effective in every area of your life. We're all familiar with the idea of micromanaging. And you, if you've been in the situation to be micromanaged, you, you kind of twitch a little bit because you know, you know you're, it's like cramming an hour of work into four hours. It just doesn't work. Of someone in authority over you being so overbearing that he shuts down your creativity, your progress, your momentum. We all understand that. But all Christian men must have the humble ability to submit to be working with or for or under someone else, just as you need the ability to lead, to be an authority in the correct correct situation, you need the ability to submit to authority, to be led. Both are important for men. It's simply a matter of finding out, all right, who's in charge here? You get three or four godly men together on a project where you clearly need a a leader, they're going to take 10 seconds to say, all right, who's in charge? Someone says, well, I'll be in charge. Great, you're in charge. We'll follow you. Godly men can follow. Godly men can submit. As a pastor, I've run into the occasional person, and, and really there's almost always at least one who is a professing Christian who seems to have a need to put down the church, to proclaim themselves as above needing to be accountable to the local church. They speak of the local church as them, not as us. There's a, there's a sense of separation. This is very concerning. At best, I mean really this is the best case scenario, this is a a person with a massive pride problem who views himself as different than those poor slobs who are blindly hypnotized into actually being submissive church members. That's at best. At worst, this is an unbeliever. Because believers, according to 1 John, love the body. They love the fellowship of the body. They love to submit to Christ in the body. And this can be a man right in our midst. This is not the non-church attender. This is the church attender. This can be a man who works really hard at avoiding any actual accountability through real relationships, through any any sort of vulnerability, any sort of vulnerable discipleship. He might attend to bigger functions like this one, because he can sort of hide here, but give him a situation to be spiritually accountable, and he balks. You know what one of the hardest sins to address in the church is? 
I'm going to preach on this on uh, tomorrow morning. One of the hardest sins to address in the church is lust. Because if I said all the men who are having a massive struggle with lust will meet in the parking lot afterwards, half of you are going to maybe go over there and the other half are going to wait around to see who else goes over there. Because we don't want to be vulnerable and accountable. So we praise the Lord for one-on-one mentorship where we can ask those hard questions and deal with those hard issues. But if you don't want to be accountable, that's pride. That's all that is. On the other hand, if you're willing to, in, in, the, in the correct setting, to lay your heart bare, and you should be doing this with your wives, to lay your heart bare and to say, here's what I'm struggling with. Would you pray with me? Would you hold me accountable? Then that's the hallmark of humility. Let me give you a fifth hallmark. And this one's long. I, I couldn't really shorten it, and I'll explain why. <laughs> Fifth hallmark of a humble Christian man, he is prepared to respond to criticism with thankfulness. He is prepared to respond to criticism with thankfulness. Listen to Proverbs 13.1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Now, I specifically labeled this hallmark that he's prepared to respond to criticism with thankfulness because it involves a heart attitude of preparedness, of being ready to receive criticism or rebuke or even just a suggestion. You've either been around a guy like this or you have been a guy like this that even the littlest suggestion just sets you off. Now, there might be some reasons for that. It might be somebody who suggests 50 things a day to you and, and you're beginning to get impatient. And there are right ways and wrong ways for someone to issue criticism or correction. Uh, for example, a little side note here. The husband with a contentious argumentative wife who's constantly giving correction is giving counsel in Proverbs. Proverbs 21.9 It is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. That's not just... That's not just saying, well, I guess i got to go live on the roof. That's, a, that's an admonition to wait it out, to be patient, to understand that maybe she's not going to change. But you notice what he's not doing? He's not responding aggressively. He's not responding angrily. He's not responding with reviling. He's measured. He's prepared. But most situations in which you receive anywhere from a mild suggestion to a strong rebuke, You know your first instinctive reaction. Every one of you guys know it right now. You know what your first instinct is if you're not prepared, if you're you're caught off guard. Your first instinctive reaction most often will be to resist, to defend, maybe even to get angry. Maybe even, I'm amazed at husbands whose wives can't get five words out of them and all of a sudden when she says, I don't like the way you do this and this, he's got 57 reasons why she's wrong. All of a sudden becomes very talkative. Stuart Scott in his book, The Exemplary Husband, which really isn't so much about being a husband, it's just about being a Christian. He gives some God-honoring ways to avoid conflict. And one of them applies directly to this hallmark of being prepared to respond to criticism with thankfulness. He says this, Gather plenty of data before speaking. Clarify often 
what you think you heard or understood. Ask lots of questions. And he gives some good backup from Proverbs 18, verse 13. He who responds with a word before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. You know what humility does? Humility says, I'm going to let you talk until you're done. I'm going to then ask questions. Proverbs 18, 17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. This is the idea of asking those follow-up questions. Okay, when you said this, what did you mean here? Not to be defensive, not to not to pick anything apart, but to try to learn, to try to understand. I, I'll tell you what, I appreciated so much my dad. He he was a humble man. And he and I got crossways once, and just for the record, I was right and he was wrong, just so we get that clear up front. <laughs> we got crossways as an adult, and I asked him, I said, Dad, I, I need to take you out to Denny's or something for coffee. I, I need to talk to you about something. And we went and, and, and talked, and I told him what my issue was. And he must have asked me 20 questions. He said, now, when did this start for you? And how, how long has it been going on? And how bad are you feeling? Is there anything else related to this? He just kept asking, 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 and asking. He never defended himself one time. And at the end of all that, he said, Boy, I'm so glad you brought this to me. I'm so thankful that you didn't let this fester between us. I never forgot that conversation. Now, why would we label this hallmark that the humble man is prepared to respond to criticism with thankfulness? Because Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a what? A friend. Of a friend. Faithful. It means reliable, trustworthy, believable. And the criticism might not be right on target, but in, in most cases there must be some reason for it, some grain of truth. If someone comes to you with the courage to say something that they know is not going to make you happy, that took courage. There must be a reason for it. Now, we have all been around the person that's just addicted to criticizing everything and everyone, and we understand that. Um, so with that person, you might, you might have to say, I appreciate your criticism. You get one a week, and that's what I'll take from you, and that's, that's the way it'll be. But the wise man is thankful for wisdom, is thankful for correction. Aren't you glad when somebody keeps you from stepping in a relationship pothole or on a relationship landmine because they warned you about something? I'm, I'm happy for that. Here's a sixth hallmark. He never reviles another to elevate himself. He never reviles another to elevate himself. Just on Sunday morning, we were in Matthew 5 together in which Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I'm not going to repeat an exegesis of that text. But we talked about the sin of reviling, and I want to revisit that. What is reviling? Why is it so serious? Reviling is more commonly referred to in our culture as verbal or emotional abuse. It's the same thing. There are three Hebrew words and eight Greek words commonly translated revile in the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, NAS, and in ESV. 
all of them have a particular nuance, a particular emphasis. And so just to be very summarized about this, let me just give you a kind of a synthesis of what the Bible says about reviling. It can be to verbally curse someone, to characterize them as less, as insignificant, as trivial. It can be to have the heart attitude of contempt, which then turns into taunts and into insults. It can be to disrespect and to dishonor verbally with an attitude of looking down on someone with disdain. It can be a decision to reject and discard an object of scorn, and you confirm this verbally. It's like you saying to someone, I want nothing more to do with you. I have nothing to do with you. I I don't care about you anymore. You're nothing to me. It can be to verbally and abusively characterize someone as evil based on the misjudgment of that person. In Matthew 18, the church is called to make a judgment on someone who is acting like an unbeliever. We are called to make the judgment, you are acting like an unbeliever. We are never called to make the judgment, you are an unbeliever. There's a big difference. They can be to verbally intimidate and threaten another with harm. And you, you would say, well, that... That never happens in the church. That happens in the church. It could be to habitually reproach and insult another in a way which may show an unregenerate heart. This is verbal murder. This is dehumanizing of another, as as Jesus puts it. Oh, these things don't happen in the church. Well, my experience in the ministry has taught me otherwise. And Jesus' instruction tells us otherwise. He's speaking to those who claim to follow him. When you begin to dehumanize another person, first of all, you don't know you're doing it. It's self-deception. And second of all, it leads you to begin to be unable to see another person in light of their value in Christ. And we don't even do this with unbelievers. Why would you devalue an unbeliever? They're going to be devalued enough at the great white throne. God doesn't need your help. In light of their humanity. And so... We begin to murder one another first with a thought and then with a word or worse with with treatments worse than words. But the clever sinner gets away with reviling because it's couched in other terms. Sarcasm. Satire. a, a, A sharp, joking manner. That's no less sinful. It's no less sinful. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. So when you're angry with someone, if you're in a difficult conversation, is what's coming out of your mouth helping to bring healing? Or is it, is it simply jabbing? Is it simply weaponry? Sarcasm. Veiled cuts to one another. These have no place in the Christian life. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to short circuit maybe a question someone might have. Uh, Paul was sarcastic several times. Yes, He used pretty severe irony to make a point, but A, he was completely right, and B, it was a last resort. It was the last thing he did. Listen to his irony with the proud Corinthians who had denigrated and made fun of his apostleship. And I I confess, I'm reading this primarily for fun because it is absolutely a scorch. You are already filled. This is 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 8. You have already become rich. You have ruled without us. And how I wish you had ruled indeed, so that we might also rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, 
as men condemned to death because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. In other words, we're, we're just ridiculous. We're fools for the sake of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are glorious, but we are without honor. Now, you might say, well, that sounds like Paul is being sarcastic. Well, that's because Paul is being sarcastic. <laughs> but the reason he's being sarcastic, this is a church that literally kicked him out when he came to issue a correction. And so this is a last resort. This is a final warning. Now, why is it okay for Paul? Well, the simple reason is, is that this is spirit-inspired scripture. What comes out of your mouth is not. You know, it's really, I think, concerning to me, even lots of unbelievers are offended at someone who puts down others to elevate themselves. Even unbelievers are offended with that. We're all sick of seeing political candidates do that, right? That's just the par for the course. And so our brother Andrew Murray brings wisdom to us once again on this topic. He said, amid what we are considered... Amid what are considered the temptations to impatience and touchiness, to hard thoughts and sharp words, which come from the failings and sins of fellow Christians, the humble man carries the often repeated injunction in his heart and shows it in his life, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, even as the Lord forgave you. This is from Ephesians 4.32. I I want to hammer this home a little bit harder. So turn with me to Proverbs 17. I want to just walk through a few Proverbs in real short order here. I just want to use it as an example how seriously Proverbs 17 alone takes rash or sharp sinful words. Just Just in survey fashion here, look at how Proverbs 17 deals with the tongue. Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel and tranquility with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Strife speaks of verbal abrasiveness, of, of argumentativeness, of lack of peace in the home. In other words, I'd rather have a dry crust of bread and a baked potato at a table that's peaceful than a feast and a banquet at a table with people arguing with each other. Chapter 17, verse 4 This will knock your socks off. An evildoer gives heed to lips of wickedness. A liar gives ear to a destructive tongue. This is pretty radical. This says that the one who listens to wicked talk, the one who listens to gossip, the one who listens to slander, the one who listens to sarcasm, is an evildoer and a liar. That means that you're cast in that same mold as the one doing the talking. Verse 5, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at disaster will not go unpunished. This is the mocking of others with the tongue. It's murdering them with the tongue. Verse 7, excellent lips are not fit, fitting for a wicked fool. Even less are lying lips for a noble man. That wisdom is unfit for a fool and foolishness is unfit for a leader in terms of what he says. Verse 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close companions. That discretion and wisdom seeks to deal with a delicate situation with prudence and with, with wisdom. But the gossip creates distance, creates problems between people. And listen, you might say, well, that's, that's theoretical. You know, the elders are dealing with people in our church right now who can't keep their mouths shut and are actually causing division between others. 
it is absolutely in the church. And so the, the admonition here is be discreet. Cover a transgression. Someone comes to you and says, I'm really struggling with this. Unless there's a reason to repeat it. Don't. Verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into one who understands than a hundred blows into a fool. That a wise man takes correction deeply and seriously and with, with thankfulness. Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the dispute before it breaks out. What's the beginning of strife? It's the reviling comment. It's the sarcasm. It's the insult. It's the provoking statement. Don't raise your hand because you all would, but raise your hand if you are the one that has on occasion with your wife or with somebody close to you said that thing that you know was nothing more than a sharp dagger to hurt and it just escalated the situation instantly. That's what Proverbs 17, 14 says. Don't do that. It's like letting out water. It's like popping a water balloon. You're not putting it back together. Verse 20. He who has a crooked heart finds no good, and he who is perverted in his tongue falls into evil. This is the one so accustomed to lying, so accustomed to making excuses that he or she begins to just sin against all around them. It's like dominoes going over. It falls into evil. And it can become a habit. It can be such that you just automatically make an excuse. In the last two verses, 27 and 28, he who holds back his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. Even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. There's a clear connection between spiritual maturity and holding back your tongue. Clear connection. Well, let me give you one more hallmark, and this is one that I think will give us a little relief because it's not quite so pointed. The seventh hallmark, the humble man practices empathetic concern. He practices empathetic concern. A Christian man is a compassionate man. He is an empathetic man. A genuine believer is hurt in his soul when he sees someone else hurting. We're, we're built that way. Yes, even if he's caused the hurt, and perhaps especially if he's caused the hurt. You recall the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18. He says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And, and you recall the story that the, this lord, this king, demonstrated concern for a slave who owed him an unpayable amount, an unpayable debt. And he had concern for him. And you recall that that slave turned out to be rotten. He didn't show the same concern to somebody who owed him almost nothing. So what do you do with this? I, I just want to ask you to, to look in the spiritual mirror. Do you spend more time concerned about yourself or for others? How much time do you spend on a given day thinking about the plight of those around you? The plight of your wife, of your of your kids... Do you have difficulty seeing beyond yourself? Seeing beyond your own desires? I, I counseled with a couple a couple of years ago. And they're, not, they're not here currently. But the one spouse in a horrible, horrible physical situation and the other spouse complaining about how it affected him. Just griping and complaining. And yes, we all know that when someone around you, close to you is suffering, it does affect you. But it's like... This guy is all he could think about is, ah, oh, this is so inconvenient for me. This is so hard for me. This is so difficult for me. 
And I just wanted to say, I, I want you to never say the word me again, except if you say me is a sinner. And that's it. If anyone in your life, your wife, a parent, even one of your adult kids, if anyone has ever had the courage to tell you, and maybe they're not totally accurate, maybe they're not even being nice about it, if they've ever had the courage to tell you you are selfish, would you consider the grain of truth in that? Would you consider it that maybe there's something to it? So how do you fight that? How do you practice sympathetic concern? The most practical way to fight against selfishness is to actively ask others what's happening in their life, listen intently, and try to serve them. Deal with selfishness by stopping focusing on yourself. By the way, sometimes I get asked the question, I've been married for a long, long time, and I want to be amazing to my wife again. You know, we can't remember the last time we used that word to speak of me or her. So how do I revive my marriage? Practice empathetic concern. Sit down with her and say, what are three things I can do to serve you at a higher level? What, what can I do better? Then be serious about it. Stick it on your calendar. Put it on your to-do list. Make it real and serve her. I was in a and a couple years ago with, with uh, John MacArthur and uh, somebody asked him the question, you know, what's the secret to your marriage? You know, expecting this big spiritual answer. And, and he said, you know, there's this hummingbird feeder on our back porch and Patricia likes it when I fill it up. And so the secret to my marriage is keeping that hummingbird feeder full because that's something that pleases her. And it's something that, that I can serve her in. And, you know, he recently, he, um, he injured himself. And you, you, you saw it, uh, was it Shepherd's Conference, where he, he had broke, a, broke part of bone? You know what he was doing? He injured himself. He was up on a ladder trying to do something for his wife. He's 83. But he was serving his wife. He's like, man, you went down. You went down for a great and righteous reason. That's good. You want to practice empathetic concern? I have a hard assignment for you. Find one or two people who are closest to you and ask them this question. Tell me how I demonstrate selfishness. Tell me how I demonstrate selfishness. And now make a plan to do the opposite. One or two things. Just do something that is not about you. I want to give you this quote one more time from Andrew Murray. And I love this word. He uses an old-fashioned word, vex just means to make you really mad he says let us look upon every brother who tries us or vexes us as God's means of grace God's instrument for our purification for our exercise of the humility Jesus our life breathes within us and let us have such faith in the all of God and the nothing of self that as nothing in our own eyes, we may, in God's power, only seek to serve one another in love. What does he mean? Look upon every brother who tries or vexes us as God's means of grace, God's instrument for our purification. It means that God takes all the ways that you are prideful and you are not humble, and he designs a person or two or five to come into your life to poke those exact areas. So just take it. Just receive it. Because if you don't respond there, he'll just, he'll just up the ante. Well, we'll send the nuclear version of that last person since you didn't respond to this one. 
you know your whole heart, your whole attitude will change if you see everyone around you as God's means of grace to change you and make you more like Christ. You're in school every day learning to be like our Savior. That's humility. And I hope that you will pursue it. I'm trying to pursue it. I hope you will as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we look forward to the day when we see Christ as He is and therefore we will be like Him. But in the meantime, Lord, we have... We have great barriers and idols to tear down. We have high places to burn to the ground. We have temples to false gods that we must tear every stone down one from another. I pray for each of these men here, Lord, that they would do that. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be utterly unoffendable unless we are defending the righteousness of God. Teach us to be unoffendable. Teach us to be endless in our patience to be those who are not easily provoked because love is not provoked to be those that guard our tongues, our minds, our responses those that sweeten every room we enter and sweeten every relationship in which we are a part help us as fathers to be tender and kind and humble and righteous and wise with our children help us as husbands to be tender and humble with our wives, to be listeners, to be empathetic. In every relationship we have, Lord, let us approach it with humility. All for the glory of Christ, the ultimate humble one. We pray in his name. Amen.